Well, amen, church family. Indeed, he is our living hope, and we are here to worship him like normal on Sunday. In addition, we're here later on to come uh, to the table, to Lord's Supper, to remember exactly that, that he is our living hope. And in, and in a little bit, as we come to the table, one of the things that I will read for all of us is Paul's exhortation that any time we come to remember who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf in salvation, that we examine ourselves so that we don't come and partake of the Lord's Supper in a manner that's unworthy, not, not as if we deserve it. We're not talking about us deserving it. We don't deserve the salvation God has brought. But, but in that salvation, by grace through faith, are we walking, are we living in a manner that is reflective and in remembrance of who he is and what he's done? That's, that's where we come to. And today, where we're at in James is the perfect passage to help us do that. It's perfect, and I want to be clear, as we come to the passage in James today, this is, for some theologians and in, and in church history, this, this passage is the most dramatic, the most uh, tense, the, the passage of the most angst for some. In fact, for Martin Luther, this was his most hated passage in all the Bible. Because if we are not careful to walk through it slowly and correctly, we can interpret it wrongly and then come out to some very poor applications. So church family, we're gonna, we're gonna move through it. We're gonna walk through it, make sure we understand it correctly. And I invite you to turn with me to James chapter two, verse 14. James two, verse 14. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1072. And here's where we're gonna pick up. Here's, here's what James says. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith and he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so... Faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now here's what he says. He, he comes in. We've, we've been talking about last week. We walked through and he comes down hard. He, he addresses us in love and calls us out that there can be no hint of partiality amongst us as a church. And all of a sudden moving forward, he comes in this week and he says, uh, coming towards the issue of faith, he says, what use is it? Of what value, of what, what purpose, what, what actually good comes from, from a faith, from someone who says they have faith. Hey, I have faith. Yep, Jesus is Lord. I, I can quote the correct theology to you, but, but they have no works. And it asks this question, can that faith, and this is key, because some of our English translations translate this well, some don't, but it's not can faith save a person, the answer to that, and we'll come back to this, can, can true faith in Jesus Christ save a person? Nod with me. Yes. Scripture's emphatically clear on that. No, this says, can that faith? Now, James is being a little bit ironic here, right? Faith simply means a confident, complete, and total trust in that which is unseen but absolutely true. It's when I, when I hear and 
learn of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, what he's done, lived the life I failed, took my punishment on the cross, died the death I deserve, rose from the grave, and I am convicted that I am a sinner out of relationship with him and I need his work to save me. And I, in faith, rest the entirety of my being for a right relationship with God, not on my ability, not on my effort, not on my works, but on Jesus. This is what faith is, but he's gonna use it irony in, in a kind of an ironic way. When he says, can that faith save him? He's referring to a faith. You see what it says? If someone says, and that's also key, not if someone has, if someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Absolutely, he's God. But then upon examination of that person's life, there are no works, or that word for works, maybe this is an easier way to understand it. It is a very general word. You could also translate action. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but upon examination, there is no corresponding action. What good is that faith? What good is simple verbal acknowledgement? He asks this question and he gives some examples. He says, if a brother or sister, now catch this, not just if anybody now, not just if it's a stranger, but if it's one of our own family members in the body of Christ, if one of our own shows up scantily clad, but really only, only having undergarments for clothes, poorly, they don't have the clothes needed to be able to survive in, in the weather. And not only that, but they don't even have enough food to take in what they need for daily nourishment. If, if they show up, and we should look at them, and, and, and it says in the text, if we should look at them, go in peace, which is actually a common uh, closing. What it is, is it's a, it's a, it was a Jewish way of saying goodbye, but in saying goodbye, go in peace, it was a, a wish of prayer that you would know the peace and you would know the security of God and that God would provide all your needs. So here's this brother or sister who clearly they're not gonna be able to make it through the day on what they're wearing and, and what they don't have to eat. And we look at them and say, oh, dear brother and sister, may you know God's peace and may he provide for you. And then it says, be warmed, be clothed. And in the Greek, you can, you can take those as either middle voice or passive voice. Now again, you don't have to be a grammarian, but here's why this is important. If it's passive voice, you're saying, hey, go find someone else to provide for you. If it's middle voice, then in trying to sound religious, it's actually mockery. You're here, you don't have the clothes you need, you don't have the food you need, that's why you showed up and asked for help. And my response is, may the Lord provide for your knees. Now go pull yourself up by your bootstraps. completely forgetting that according to Galatians 6, we should never grow tight weary of doing good, especially to those in the household of faith. Forgetting the words of our Lord to take care, forgetting that God's means of provision for that person is not gonna be magic food and clothes falling out of the sky, but me. Notice the person doesn't turn them away because they go, I, I really wanna help you, but I just, I don't have anything I can give. No, God will take care of you. Now I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go enjoy my $30 Panera bread lunch with my family and sip my child, my pumpkin spice latte. 
He says, what good? Having faith that has no action, having faith without works, it's of no good. It's, It's no more value than having someone in need and wishing them well and doing nothing to attempt to provide for their need. And so he gives the conclusion, church family, even so, if faith, if it has no works, if it has no action, it is dead being by itself. And that's critical. It's not faith is dead. It's that if all a person says is, yeah, I've got faith, I believe this thing, and there's no corresponding action that reflects that, then that faith is dead. And here's what's critical. What we are not comparing here, James is not comparing faith and works. He is comparing a living faith which produces works, we'll see that in a moment, with someone who says, yeah, I've got faith, but that faith does not produce any fruit in and through their lives. It's dead, it's useless, it's not there. So he makes this point, but he says for the sake of argument, but somebody, but somebody may well say, you have faith and I have works. He says, somebody, hypothetically, there may be opponent who, who tries to separate the two out as if, as if they're two things. Well, you have faith. God's given you that gift of faith. That's great. God's given me the gift of service. I have works. These are two separate things. We can't tie them together. So suppose someone should say that. And this is his response. Show, prove, demonstrate your faith without the works. And I will show you, I will demonstrate my faith by my works. He says, you say you believe something, that's awesome. Try to to show me that you believe it without doing anything. You can talk all day about it. You can talk all day about how Jesus is great, how Jesus is Lord, how how Jesus is generous, how Jesus is, but but none of that makes any difference in your life. Instead, what I'm gonna do is I will show you, I will prove to you that I really believe Jesus is Lord. I will prove to you that by the manner in which I live my life. And he's gonna provide a a, a dangerous example here. He says, you believe that God is one. Now, if you're real, if 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 you're real observant here, we put on our observer, you believe that God is one instantly in our minds, Deuteronomy 6, 4. You need to turn there, but Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, as this, as this, when, when it says the Lord your God is one, it's this summary statement for all of the truth of true theology in one statement. So when he says, when you say the, that God is one, you do well, what he's saying is, that's great. That's great that you have great and perfect theology. You believe the Lord your God is one and you're even, that's great. The demons also believe the same thing and shudder. He says, you have good theology. That's great. That's great that you could pass a theology class. That's great that you, could, that you would say Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's great that you say that Jesus is Lord. That's great that you say Jesus died on the cross. That's great that you say Jesus rose from him. That is awesome. Guess what? Every demon believes the same thing. And in your lack of action, their action at least leads them to shudder. And that word shudder is an intense word. It's only used here in scripture, but it's the idea 
of a deep dread and terror falling upon a person, causing the hairs to stand up on end. It's saying the demons, they know the truth. They don't care. They don't respect God. They don't honor God, but they know exactly who God is. And knowing who God is in the life of a demon leads them to absolute terror, which is what you see every time Jesus encounters a demon in the Gospels. The demons don't ever try to fight Jesus. They're, they're, please, Lord, just leave us alone. It says to say that I have faith, to say that I believe things, but to have no work, you're not even on the level of faith that a demon has. It says, so are you willing, are you willing to recognize, do you have a desire to see you foolish, you empty person? That faith without works is useless. To say you believe something, but there to be no action is useless. And he's gonna give us two examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. Faith was cooperating with his works. And as a result of the works, the actions, faith was perfected, was brought to completion. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now he's gonna give two Old Testament examples here. The first is Abraham. And again, if we're not careful, church family, this is where we can, we can uh, fall into a danger and a trap. Why? Because elsewhere in Scripture, when Paul is over here in both Romans and Galatians, and he is unpacking the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace, received through faith alone, and he's got people who argue and say, well, in the Old Testament, they had the law. They could earn their salvation. And, and Paul goes, no, 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 don't you dare. Go back and look at Abraham who was before the law. It says in Genesis 15, verse six, God made this promise. He promised Abraham a great people would come from his descendants, that he would give them a land, that they would prosper, that those who blessed them would be blessed, those who cursed them would be cursed. He promises him the nation and, 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 and geographical land of Israel. And it says that Abraham believed, he rested in faith. He, he believed not just what God said, but believed who God is. He believed who is the one who said it. He believed that God is who he says he is and he would do what he said he'd do. And because of that response of faith, it says in Genesis, and Paul quotes it, that God reckoned him, that God looked and declared him righteous, that God justified him. That's what Paul then, that's what happens in Genesis, that's what Paul then comes in in Romans and Galatians and says. And if you just go on the outset, you go, well, wait a minute, contradiction. James, James says the other, James says, that Abraham was justified by works. And he talks about on the altar and, and what James is referencing is Genesis chapter 22. And if you're familiar with the story, it's, it's where Abraham, God tells Abraham, it's been 25 years since that first promise, or it's been more than 25 years, 25 years after that promise, Abraham receives his promised baby boy, Isaac. 
Isaac grows up, spends some time after that, and God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. So Abraham and Isaac, they, they go up, they climb Mount Horeb to the top, Mount Horeb, you know, or, sorry, Mount, not Mount Horeb, Mount Moriah, which you would know as Mount Zion, which is where the temple would later on sit. And Abraham takes them up there, and Abraham prepares everything, and Isaac's there, and Abraham is about to, to slay Isaac in sacrifice, and God stops him and says, Now that I have seen that you have not withheld even your only son from me, I know that your faith is real. I know that your heart is genuine, and God provides another sacrifice. And there's a lot of things going on in that passage that we don't have time to cover, but what that passage shows and what James is picking up on is James is not using justified in the same way Paul is. Paul uses justified to describe what has to happen for God to declare a person righteous and bring them into a relationship. Well, for that to happen, there has to be a response of faith to the grace of God. James, when he uses the word justified, he is talking about a final evaluation of that faith. Here in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. Here, years later, when given a crazy command, Abraham obeyed God. And we know that obedience to put Isaac on the altar, according to Hebrews chapter 11, is because by faith, Abraham reckoned that God could restore life to the dead. So even Abraham's willingness to obey was driven by his faith. So James is not trying to make a statement that somehow faith is not what saves or makes a person right with God. What he's driving at is if you really have faith that makes a person right with God, it is going to produce action that obeys God even when what God asks would demand everything. And then the evaluation of that faith is found genuine, which sounds remarkably like the beginning of the book with why we count trials as joy because the testing of our faith produces endurance and our faith being found genuine, verses 12, 13, and 14, is rewarded. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, back here, Abraham believed. God allowed it to be put to the test. And what Abraham believed, the scripture was fulfilled because Abraham's action backed up his belief. And so he makes a statement, you see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. When he makes that statement in verse 24, he is not saying man is made right with God by the amount of works they do. False. There is no amount of work you can do or I can do to make myself right with God. What he is saying is, if you're going to evaluate, if our faith is placed on the altar and evaluated and judged what will justify, what will prove that faith to be genuine and real and right is the work that backs up that faith, the work that comes out of that faith. It's what he says, it was faith, faith was there before the works, and it was faith and work cooperating 
And the, the works or action brought faith to its complete end, brought maturity, brought obedience. Same thing with Rahab. The example of Rahab goes back to Joshua chapter 2. The spies come into Jericho. The spies come in. She gives them, uh, keeps them safe, protects them from the, the, the soldiers of the city. And she says, when you come, I know that God's going to destroy the city, but will you spare me? And they said, well, if you want God to spare you, this is what God would have you do. He'd have you hang this, this, uh, this um, linen outside your window and God will spare you. So he brings up Rahab to say, here's an example. Rahab clearly believed, she recognized, she told him, your God's the one true God. I know he's gonna conquer this city. I wanna be saved. That's great. If you really believe, then here's the action to demonstrate your belief. And she carried it out. And so what all of a sudden James does is he takes this contrast. One of the largest figures in the Old Testament, one of the smallest figures of the Old Testament in terms of importance. Someone who's an example of uprightness, someone who Rahab mentions, the harlot who originally was in something bad, who he gives these contrasts of two people who are as far apart and described. And what he makes it simply saying is this, that this is the means, whether you're here, whether you're here, whether you're this, whether you're this, this is the way in which faith is demonstrated. So just as the body without the spirit is dead, right? If you see, if you see a lifeless body, we were watching, a, Bethany and I were watching last night a, a murder mystery and, and, the, and the guilty party in, in one of the episodes who, who committed the crime, he, he, he committed the murder and it was, he clearly regretted it afterwards. He, he remarked on just how strange it is that one second a human can be this living, moving, breathing being and then when life is taken out, it's just, in his words, where it's just a, just a pile of meat. Right? Why? Because if you see a dead body, there's something about a dead body where you know that person's not there. It's just an empty shell. And that's what it says, to say that, to say that I have faith, to say that I believe the truth, but there to be no corresponding action is as absurd as looking at a dead body and going, wow, look at that living creature. There's no life in a dead body. Why? because the spirit's gone. There is a unity between the spirit and the body that produces life, and so there is with faith and action. So church family, understand, what is James trying to say in this as we think about the context? He's saying that if you say you believe the truth, if you say, if we say we believe, we have faith, then there must be corresponding action that flows out of that faith. If there's not, then the faith you say you have is not in fact a faith of life, but it's dead. That's what he says. Now in saying that, we need to be clear in how we apply this. So I'm gonna rehash something for a second. I want everybody to be clear. We need to know that salvation comes by grace alone, unmerited, undeserved, impossible to earn favor, and it's received through faith alone. James is not drawing a contradiction or competition between faith and works. He's not competing or drawing a contradiction between he and Paul. In Paul's writings, he's looking at the source of where salvation comes from, the beginning moment of salvation. James is looking at the fruit of salvation that should flow out of salvation. 
James agrees throughout his letter that faith, the personal response of faith is what brings about salvation. Paul agrees with James that faith should produce work because we saw in Philippians in the last year that Paul says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. So I want to be clear though, faith alone is the tunnel through which salvation enters our lives. Faith alone is, is the energy and the power by which we take action and live out and live life. But we need to understand if we know that salvation comes by grace alone received through faith alone, you cannot earn salvation. We also need to understand that when we profess faith in Christ, there is a relationship between faith and works, or if you want to use it this way, faith and action. Romans 3, 28 is clear. Faith alone brings a person into right relationship with God. Faith alone. Romans 3, 28. Mentioned Philippians 2 already, that when we have placed that faith in Christ, that if it is true living faith that recognizes Jesus, I am fact, am a sinner by birth. I was made for a relationship with you, but sin has separated me from you. Because I am born a sinner, I have committed sin that is deserving of divine punishment. But you, st- and you, you who are God, stepped down out of heaven, became fully man, lived the life that I have failed to live up to. You went on that cross, became my sin, drank all of the eternity of hell that I deserve. You died, you rose again, and in response to your conviction, Holy Spirit, the kindness of your conviction telling me I'm a sinner, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you rose from the grave. You are who you said you are. You did what you said you do. You're sitting at the right hand of the Father, and you are coming back. I believe. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Romans 10. But Scripture's clear that that faith, if that's the faith that we possess, that faith then must be lived out. And the great news is, Scripture's clear, that at that moment of salvation, when that faith is placed, the third person of the Trinity, God Himself, the Holy Spirit, enters into our lives, seals us, fills us, and actually gives us the power to take those actions. So there's no action of faith that we lack the ability to follow. We just choose not to. And this this is really clear. If you look over just a couple pages to your left at Hebrews 11, the great chapter about faith, listen to just a few of them. Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. By faith, Noah, being warned, built an ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out. By faith, he offered up Isaac. Moses, by faith, didn't allow himself to be treated as Pharaoh's son and endured hardship. By faith, here's what you see all throughout that chapter. Here's people who walked by faith, and when it says they did something by faith, what's the next thing? Action. Because faith is not just believing something willy-nilly in our minds. Faith is resting upon something and acting out of that. 
So no, salvation comes by grace through faith alone, but we also need to understand that faith is to produce works. If we understand that, then church family, we embrace the call for a fruitful faith. Church family, understand, if we really have faith and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is in fact our living hope, then then that faith, that truth must produce action in and through our lives. It must. Already here in this passage, we've seen that faith, faith leads Abraham to fully trust the character of God, to reject the doubts and the messages of culture that would trample and dispute the goodness and the beauty and the greatness of who our God is, who is holy, 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 who is fully loving, who is fully just, who is fully righteous, who is fully gracious and merciful and compassionate. We see that faith leads us to know the friendship of God. The demons have a kind of faith and they only know know what it's like to be an enemy of God. Our faith should lead us as Abraham to, to know the friendship, the relationship of God, to know his fellowship. Faith leads us to yield what is costly to God. Understand this, church family. When you come to faith in Christ, You don't get the rights to your life back. Jesus has the rights to your life. You don't get freedom to do whatever you want. You're given freedom to follow him who is good. And there are going to be times following him where what it's going to mean in faith is he comes and he says, I want you to take your Isaac and lay him on the altar. And if we really say that Jesus is Lord and our faith is in him, then we're going to have to sacrifice what he calls us to sacrifice. It's going to mean by faith we obey the will of God. It's going to mean faith will lead us. Look at Rahab who risks her safety and security and the peacefulness of her everyday life to care for people in danger. This has been a theme throughout James Church family. We live in a world where there are all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems, where there are real people who are hurting and struggling. And if we really have faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we are not allowed to turn a blind eye and keep those interruptions from ever touching our lives, both as a congregation and as individuals. Already in James, faith is going to mean counting our trials joy. It's going to mean seeking wisdom from God in faith. It's going to mean embracing God's favor regardless of what our economic status is. It's going to mean persevering under trial, believing that God is good and not a tempter. It's going to mean being quick to hear, hesitant to speak, cautious to anger. It's going to mean actually doing the word. It's going to mean bridling the tongue. It's going to mean keeping unstained from the world. It's going to mean refusing partiality. It's going to mean caring for the helpless. Understand, church family, there is a true and a real danger, even as a child of God, to come in and go, oh, amen, pastor, and walk out and do nothing. There's a real danger for me as a pastor to get riled up and excited and passionate about the Lord, and I walk out and do nothing. And that's what James is coming after here, church family. He's coming after us, us going, oh, Jesus is generous. Oh, Jesus is generous. Oh, we're so grateful for the generosity of his grace, but I refuse to tithe. I refuse to ever take up any extra giving cause that there is. Oh, Jesus is Lord. Oh, his mercy is grace. But anytime I see someone helpless, I'm merciless. 
Oh, Jesus is Lord and, and his word is good and his commands are right, but I refuse to honor his command and follow him in baptism or joining a local church or serving and taking the gifts he's given me and putting them to use for the building up of the body. Oh, Jesus is Lord. I've been going to Wednesday nights. I've got all this great knowledge now about heaven and hell and angels and demons, but I'm not driven with any compassion to go share the gospel with the lost world who's going to hell. I'm not driven by the hope of heaven to keep myself from the hope of the material of this world. I, I reckon, I, I love all these truth about angels and demons, but I'm not doing anything to safeguard and discern in my mind what is true or not. It could be something as simple as we say Jesus is Lord, he's in control of our lives, yet we never lay down our worries and our fears and instead, the action of our lives are not driven by the faith that Jesus is the sovereign, true Lord sitting on his throne, but they're driven by the fear and worries of our own security. There's a lot of ways we can do this. So church family, we need to embrace the reality this morning that God has called us to be men and women of fruitful faith. In fact, the, the way James would put it, there is only one kind of true faith. It's living faith, true faith, fruitful faith. To have a faith that never produces anything means that faith is illegitimate and lifeless. And that's the last part here, church family. We need to heed the danger. Heed the danger of an easy believism and a false salvation. You see, we've, 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 many of us have lived in in very much a church culture. Understand the danger that James presents here. You can pray the sinner's prayer. You can pass a theology class. But if your faith really isn't real faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you can do those things and not be saved. There's a, there's a book about the assurance of salvation, and the pastor who writes it, he shares a story where he was at a basketball gym, went up to play basketball. It was kind of a tool he tried to use to get to know other guys in the community and share the gospel, and there was a college student there that day, cursing like a sailor, tattoos all up and down, very brazenly, I'm an atheist and I don't care about God. This pastor just was praying again, trying to find ways to, to sh begin to share the gospel with this young man. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and it took the pastor totally off guard, this, this young man stopped him and said, are you trying to evangelize to me? And it took him back and he said, well, well, actually, yes, I am trying to share the gospel with you. Oh, he said, oh, well, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that because you see, when I was a teenager, I went to a youth camp where they said, if you pray the prayer, once saved, always saved. So I don't believe in Jesus, but you know what? I prayed that prayer, so if he's really real, I'm good. Listen, church family, there are no magic prayers that save you. Instead, there is great grace that's a response to real faith. At whatever words, true faith causes you to cry out and say, Jesus, you really are who you say you are and I need you to save me because you are Lord and I need to know you and I need to follow you. Yet oftentimes it's possible to, to throw those things out there, to, to hold lip service to God but not actually know the saving power of the Lord. 
and we've grown up and I've been a part of it. We have all the kids in at VBS. Just pray this prayer after me. And I'm not knocking the method, okay? Hear me today. Some of you were saved because you prayed the prayer after the preacher. I'm not knocking that. Don't miss the point, please. We say pray the prayer and then the kids come down. We say, okay, come into this counseling room. And here I'm sitting with three kids, all of whom were celebrating got saved that day. Except when I look at this one, I say, well, why are you, why are you here? These are fifth graders, by the way. They're old enough to know how to put some thoughts together. Why are you here? Ah, I came down last year. Just was curious if the room looked any different. It doesn't. All right, yeah, man, I'm going to send you back to your group. <laughs> Why are you here? Well, you know, that guy just said I should repeat what he said, so I repeated what he said. So do you, do you why do you need to, I don't know. I just he said repeat it, so I repeated it. And then after some more questions, realizing he's really not interested at all, I sent him back. And then here's this young man. Well, why'd you, and ultimately getting down to this young man, here's this young man that God was definitely stirring, but I could not in good conscience say he was saved because he refused. He was like, well, I'm not a sinner. So hear me, church family. I've watched many of my peers walk an aisle at an emotional youth event and, there, and, and make a profession of faith, to use our language, and there never be a drop of fruit from their life of love and affection for Christ. So for many of us, hopefully in the room, I'm not trying to cause anyone to second guess your salvation. We just need to recognize if we really believe what we say we believe, we better back it up with the corresponding action by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. But there may be some watching online, some in this room where you recognize, yeah, I know the right answers. I can say the right thing. But the truth is I have never felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I don't ever repent from sin because I don't really think I'm that bad. I've never experienced the discipline of God and have, and have submitted to it. All of which, by the way, those are fruitful works of true faith. Then hear me today and let me plead with you. Do not fall into the danger of thinking that a faith that is words only is a faith of life. True faith brings and moves action. And church family, the great news is this. James is speaking generally for many of us, all of us undoubtedly. I can preach this text. I've been studying it all week and I can go, oh my goodness, there's so many things I fail to do. All of us are that way. James isn't saying that you're not saved if you're not spiritually perfect. I'm not going to be spiritually perfect till we stand before Jesus one day. The presence of fruit, even if it's just small initial fruit. I got saved at five and a half. I couldn't have said the word theology for probably the first 10 years of my salvation. The fruit may be small. The actions may take place over a long time. The question, though, is, is there real tangible fruit coming out of our faith? Is our faith driving us to action, or is our faith just something that we talk about, that we could check a box off a test, but there's no change that enters into our lives? And church family, as we come to the table this morning, as we remember who Jesus is and what he's done, Paul gives us these words. Whoever eats of the, or, or, of the bread or drinks of the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must examine themselves in doing so. 
if, he, if they are to eat of the, the bread and drink of the cup. Here's what it says in a moment, we're gonna come to this table after a time of invitation and examination. And I'm gonna invite any of you in the room who, who have truly come to saving faith in Christ. You are, you are a Christian because you have responded to the grace of God and faith. Whether you're a member of the church or not, we invite you to take part in the Lord's Supper. If you do not know Christ, if you've not yet come to faith in Christ as a child, then this is not meant for you according to scripture. Instead, it's a testament to you, but it's not meant to, for you. But for those of us who are believers, church family, it says that as we come, we must examine ourselves. Are there places in our life where my faith is more words than tangible obedience? Man, if there is in this morning, church family, it's an opportunity for us to confess, to tell that to the Lord, to, to remember who he is and what he's done, that, that when the Lord calls me to lay my life on the line, it is nothing less than what he himself has done in a far greater way for me. And he has gone before me and he goes with me and his glory guards my rear. So church family, this is as we enter into, as I pray here in a moment, as we enter into this time of invitation, it is an opportunity to respond. Maybe you need to come to faith in Christ. Maybe you need to talk about how steps to join the church. However the Lord's leading you, whatever it is, maybe you need to pray, you move. For many of us, we will stand and we will declare the glory of Jesus and what, who he is and what he's done. But don't miss in this time. This is a time to, to still our hearts before God, brothers and sisters, and say, Jesus, is there anything that needs to be dealt with before we come to the table? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of life. And real faith in you, Lord, it does not produce lifelessness or idleness, Lord. It produces life, action. So Jesus, as we come to remember who you are and what you've done, Lord, may we do so with sensitive hearts, Holy Spirit, to which you're stirring today. We look to you, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen.